I think that we make an assumption that the differences and changes between you and your children and your grandchildren are cultural changes. I am certain my grandparents looked at me and realized that I was different from them, assuming that it was only clothing and language. And the truth of the matter is that was very much the case. That the differences between a parent and a grandchild and all the other streams of generational differences over the course of human history have always been dictated by changes in terms of how people have said things or the music they listened to or how they dressed. I'm not so sure that's true anymore, though. The other week I read in the New York Times that people born before 1960 have a decided disadvantage in the digital age. The hand-eye coordination of a computer mouse is slower for those born before 1960 than those born after. For, for the pre-1970 crowd, that would include me, researchers have seen that typing times on an iPhone are slower than for those born in most recent decades. And it makes sense because our minds weren't raised with playing with these things. But there are also other indicators of our age and the time that you were born in. For example, I remember seeing people actually dial phones. Not push buttons, but actually dial a phone. So I'm going to share an image with you. And you can guess how old this is. I remember seeing my mother sitting on a chair by a wall in the kitchen, smoking a cigarette and talking on the phone. Of course you know how old that scene is, because no one sits talking on the phone and smoking indoors. When I tell my children that there were no remote controls for TV sets when I was growing up, they looked at me as if the aliens had captured their father and some stranger was put into his body. And then they ask me, what did you do without remote controls? And I tell them that's why my parents had children. I would sit by the TV set, and when the phone would ring, my job was to lower the volume. When it was 7 o'clock at night, my job was to change the channel from 7 to 4. It's funny, but it's also a real memory. There is little else that is larger in any of our lives than our families. For better or for worse, for happiness or for sadness, what our families are, are in large part, is what we are. And people often wonder, why is it that in Jewish tradition is so preoccupied with families? We read of family troubles and joys in most of the Torah's greatest characters, from Abraham to Sarah to Moses to David. They all had problems with their families. And it makes you wonder why the Bible is so concerned with directing humans to living better lives, that it spends so much time talking about the problems of family life. And I guess because it's not only the hardest thing to do, but family life is also the most meaningful. Or see it this way. When the two most important psychological analysts of the past century, when they wrote their autobiographies, and I'm speaking about Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, do you know that neither of them wrote a word about their family life? This was their autobiographies. Not a word was written about their mother or their father. Not a word about a brother or a sister, a child or a friend, 
a wife or a lover, not a word. What they did talk about was their work, which I guess is easier to talk about than the things that we can control in life and the outside that the world sees. In the end, after reading both of their books, you'll be able to fluently talk about their theories and work, but you'll never get a sense of the people that they actually were. Because real life isn't what you do for a living. The real and very human part of you is the messy reality of your family's life. The part that is filled with remorse and disappointment and frustration and happiness and exultation of forming a life with other people. Do you remember the awkwardness you felt when you saw a school teacher out of school in the mall with their family or in a restaurant? How odd it looked to see your doctor, your cantor, or your rabbi out in street clothes? I know I see it all the time in other people's faces. It's the strangest of seeing someone who you see in one category, but they now argue themselves as something complete and whole. That they are not just a person who does one thing, but they are people who have many things in their life that are surrounded by life and love. So if Freud and Jung were completely silent on the matters of their family and their heart, then consider that the Torah, the Jewish tradition, is the exact opposite. From the very beginning of the Torah of the Bible, we read of people and their families. And all of those stories show that it is as imperfect and human as our own are. The Bible realizes something very early on, and that is human life. If it is to be meaningful, it is meant to be shared. And because of this, our families are important. Now this might strike you as common sense, but consider that most of the world's great religions do not see this in the same way. In 1990, there was an English professor and secular Jew named Roger Kamenetz who accompanied a group of eight Jewish leaders to Dharmasala, India, where the Dalai Lama lives in exile from Tibet. Kamenetz then wrote a book titled The Jew in the Lotus, which described the dialogue between the Tibetan leader and those rabbis. Today the book is in its 35th printing. The Dalai Lama was particularly interested in understanding how Jews survived as a people in a diaspora during our thousands of years in exile. Tibetan Buddhists, now expelled from their homeland in Tibet, are facing the same dilemma, he reasoned. The rabbis were interested, from their own perspective, in the phenomena of the Jubu, the Jewish Buddhist, that has seen Jews attracted to the spirituality of Buddhism. And at the end of the book, after much reflection and study and dialogue, Kamenetz told the Dalai Lama that Buddhism has a profound weakness that threatens it. Their monks, he told them, are not only celibate, but the Buddhist monks also have to disavow their families and separate themselves from society, just as the Buddha had done many thousands of years before. And he told the Dalai Lama that he won't be able to draw on the Jewish example of how we survived for 2,000 years in exile because he said to him, because you have no families, that's why you won't survive. There are other religious movements who demand that their religious leaders do not marry, 
and also demand that they do not have families. In essence, both of these great faiths believe that religious piety is achieved in solitude. It's something you do only by yourself. And it's something that you can achieve only without the responsibility of love and family. That it is also safe from the messiness of love and family. And I speak of this because the Torah reading for this morning is the beginning of the fourth book of the Torah, known simply as Bamidbar. The word Bamidbar means desert, and it speaks of the wanderings of the Jews through their 40 years in Sinai. In particular, there is one section of this morning's reading that for most of us, we simply glance over it. But like most of the beautiful things in the world, it is subtle, and it requires a careful re-looking at. As those newly freed Jewish slaves begin their journey, a census, we are told, is taken to count the number of people in the nation. They did this in part for security reasons. A nation of people needs to know how many adult men they have, so they know how many people can defend. And they also did this for administrative reasons. A nation needs to know what its tax base is. And this is why the book of Bamidbar is known in English as Numbers because it contains a counting of the people. And yet, as the people are about to be counted, we read, At Rosh Kol Adat B'nei Yisrael, Number the sum of the nation of the children of Israel, everyone according to their family. And with this unfolds one of the most ancient sections of the biblical record, while scholars freely debate and wonder over how and when the Bible was written, almost everyone accords that this section that we read this morning as one of the most earliest and pristine. The names are of incredible antiquity. The careful recording of the names of each of the tribal families is special because those names are particular and unique to that time. We also never hear those names spoken or recorded ever again. Ever. A teacher of mine once pointed out to me that this section is one of the most important ones in the entire Bible because it speaks about people and their families, about how they lived and who they lived with, that we come from real people. The Jewish people were born from humans, not from an idea. And this idea of family and of the powerful tie that it creates in us, it touches me as it does anyone, and I assume everyone, who struggles and embraces their families. This is also the idea that the Jewish world can survive without synagogues and without schools. We can carry on, I freely admit, without rabbis and cantors, but on a personal and religious level, we cannot survive without our families. And it is for that reason, if no other, that all of the most special religious moments are with family, Passover and Rosh Hashanah, a Brit Milah, a Bat or a Bar Mitzvah, surrounded by family, no matter how difficult they may be, surrounded by family fulfills our hopes. And the very best explanation I can find was in the memoirs of the Nobel Prize laureate, writer and Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel. Wiesel records that on March the 19th, 1944, 
the Nazis executed their plan to liquidate the town of Siget in Hungary to remove all the Jews from there. They had no idea, the Jews did, of where they were heading. Some people were saying that they were convoys that were taking them into the interior of the country. And Wiesel's family maid, a saintly Hungarian Christian woman named Maria, offered to take their entire family to stay with her at her place up in the Carpathian Mountains. Ellie's father refused her help. He said that we must stay with our community, with their people. And despite the death of his father and mother and little sister, Ellie Wiesel wrote that his father was right. They were right to want to stay together. That no one wished to be parted from the other. That family unity was one of our most important traditions. And he said the German Nazis knew this so well. They used that knowledge of spreading a rumor that Jews would be transferred to a Hungarian labor camp where they were assured, they were repeated over and over again that their families would stay together. And so it was that the strength of the family tie, which one of the great reasons for the survival of our people, became a tool in the hands of the exterminator. In other words, so many would have died rather than sacrifice a member of their family. No cause could be greater than the survival of our families. None. Because the very story of the Jewish story begins with the message that where there is family, there is hope. And so as our nation wandered and winded their way through the Sinai Desert so many thousands of years ago, beset by fear and danger, they went as families. They knew that it might not always be safe, but they knew that with their sons and daughters, with their husbands and wives, they knew, as we do, that they would succeed. Shabbat Shalom.